millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, and welcome to the Living History UK podcast, a podcast for the discerning and knowledge-hungry historians out there. You can support our podcast and get much more from Living History UK by joining our Patreon from just £1, and by doing so, you'll be a part of an ever-growing community and really help to make a difference as we strive to keep history alive. But for now, enjoy this podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Living History UK podcast. So in this episode, I'm joined by the indefatigable Peter Neal. Uh, he's probably wondering what that word means, but he's got a bit of time to uh, look on Google and find out what it is. But in the meantime, I'm going to talk you through a background on chemical warfare. So gas warfare, if you will. Now, we automatically think when anyone mentions gas warfare or chemical warfare of the First World War, and indeed that is what we're going to focus on in this episode, and we're going to lean very firmly on uh, Pete's uh, specialist uh, area of expertise, if you will, uh, as Pete does reproduce uh, gas hoods and gas equipment of the uh, of the First World War to a very high standard as well. You might just find some on the Living History UK shop. But anyway, uh, we're going to do a little bit of a background on uh, gas warfare. We do always think of gas warfare being exclusive to the First World War. But actually, my research has led us to, to actually realise that it dates back to 600 BC. The Athenians tainted a water supply with poisonous plants. So that's when it dates back to. And there are other examples as well, such as more recently in 1845, the French used smoke to uh, kill um, Algerian soldiers and smoke them out of uh, a city, which led in 1907 to the Hague Convention being set up, uh, of which major powers, including Germany, France and the UK, to name just a handful, signed. That was in 1907. And fast forward in seven years, the First World War breaks out. So, Pete, how are we doing? Are you all excited for this episode? Absolutely, especially when we start talking about the actual development of the um, anti-gas equipment, because as, as we've already touched on, I, I make bits and pieces for our shop, which stem back to when we did started doing our trench events, um, because blokes needed hoods and things like that, and nobody had any, as in selling them all good quality reproductions of them so i sort of took it on myself to sort of teach myself how to make them and uh 
yeah, and that's how we ended up selling them in our shop. So with that, I've obviously had to learn quite a bit, not loads, but enough enough to get me by <laughs> about the evolution of how gas masks or anti-gas equipment was used during the First War and when it came in and all the rest of it. So we made sure that the time period was right for the anti-gas equipment that we're using. And I have to say, the the anti-gas equipment that you made for the trench event and subsequently is absolute uh, top-notch. It's revered in living history circles, uh, to say the very least. And, uh, of course, the research has to naturally go go hand-in-hand hand with it. Now, I know the answer to this, but for our, our avid listener out there, what was the what was the first use of uh, gas, or, uh, gas or even chem- chemical warfare uh, in the Great War? And, and which country used it, of course, which is always the burning question. The French. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so back, uh, everyone thinks it was the nasty Germans that um, released gas for the first time, but it was actually the French. It was tear gas. Uh, they didn't use it large amount. It was um, quite quite a small amount that they used, and they didn't feel that it was that effective, really. But they, by doing that, they sort of, kicked a hornet's nest in regard to the Germans. And the Germans went away and thought, hang on a minute, if they're going to do that to us, we're going to do that back to them, but worse. <laughs> so they got their boffins thinking. And that brings us up to April 1915 um, at the first Battle of Eeps, or well, second Battle of Eeps, sorry, I'm wrong. Second Battle of Eeps, which is pretty much the, well, it was the opening, sort of the opening volley, so to speak, of the first, of the second Battle of Eeps, uh, when they released chlorine gas. So that was the first mass gas attack, uh, which was the Germans, but the French did it beforehand. Yes, I think it's one of those things where we're almost far too keen to to blame the Germans for using gas, like you say, the nasty Germans using gas, but it was actually actually the French, as you say, and you can quite quickly see that the the Hague Convention signed only what, seven years earlier, just completely went out of the window in that respect. And it opened up the the floodgates, you know, all's fair in love and war, as they say. But from from tear gas, what kind of what kind of gases were, were being developed and, and and how were they being used against um, against the, the enemy in that sense? So the first one was I say it was chlorine gas and that was being used uh pretty much throughout all of nineteen fifteen because uh once we worked out what they were using, we were throwing that back at them. Um, the way it was for, because a lot of people come to this concept that it was all delivered in shells. Well, that was a lot later on that you're getting it delivered in shells. At this point in 1915, it's all in canisters. So the only way to destroy, to destroy, <laughs> the only way to describe these canisters is imagine one of those big oxygen tanks you get in like a hospital for like welding or something like that. It, it's it's like one of those. They'd be placed onto the ground, dug in, and you'd open the valve up. As long as the wind's blown in the right, it's got to be blown in the right direction, um, which is preferably away from you. <laughs> Undo the taps, and the wind would just carry it across. So when it's left the German lines, you've got sentries out in the uh, Allied lines when this first attack happened. So predominantly, it was French colonial troops and Canadians. There was a smattering of British there, but nothing heavy in the line of British. It was mainly the French colonials took um, a big brunt of this uh, of this attack. Um, but there, they, they, they see this cloud coming across no man's land, this sort of greeny yellow mist just coming towards them. And they just think it's a smoke screen. But obviously, 
how wrong they were when it actually got into the uh, trenches and blokes started coughing and spluttering everywhere. So chlorine gas is like it says on the tin. So you go swimming today, you've got chlorine in a swimming pool. So if you think um, how the chlorine can sting your eyes, if you've been in the swimming pool for a long time, well, just think that about a hundred times worse. So they also, it will try and get into your respiratory system as well, causing a lot of fluid. So it's, it's not going to, it can kill you, but it's designed to uh, incapacitate. Is that the word to use? Uh, Basically to take you out the game for a little bit, but it, Although it could kill you in, in in large doses, it you know it could actually kill you and blind you in some instances. So when this when chlorine was being used for this first time up, up at Wipers, the, the guys of course had no uh, personal anti anti gas equipment at all. And I'm I'm just trying to put myself into the sort of B twos or B fives of these guys. You know what what's this kind of green sort of ish uh, hazy cloud coming towards you that describes and then suddenly getting this horrible sort of smell and it being irritating all your sort of, um, you know, your, your mouth and, and, and your lungs and your nose. I'm just trying to put myself, it must must have been a horrendous feeling. You have no control over it at all. You know, at least with, uh, you know, sort of uh, guns being fired, rifles, small arms fire, you can kind of see who's shooting you. But this is so, um, it's so indiscriminate in that sense. It's something you can you can barely even see. Must must have been absolutely horrible. So, what what were the guys doing at this point? What um, what were they doing to try and um, you know sort of combat this this new sort of um, you know type of warfare? So, first of all, that well, it's like anything that's that's new. There's not a lot they can do about it. You know, when this first gas attack happens, it actually caused a hole in the line. Folks run away from it. You know, especially the French colonial troops because they just couldn't deal with it. And if the Germans had realized how successful they were they could have actually punched a hole through the line which they did because the, the line that's a section of line had actually broken but until but by the time the gas had cleared there'd been a reorg and they started moving back into the trenches but you know if only the germans had followed that straight up you know you know the second battle of eeps or second battle of wipers could have been a very different story but you know like you said steve um what did they do well like i said there's not a lot they could do the best that they could do was to hold their breath for long as possible and just close their eyes or cover their hands over their eyes. Because um, remember, it's like with, with gas as well, it's it's airborne. So it's it's sweeping across. So you just got to wait for that. Obviously, depending on how much gas they're pumping into that area, is to try and hold your breath for about 20 seconds, if you can do that. You know, But the human body is always shown that under extreme stress like that, it can do remarkable things. But... And that was the best they could do at that time. It was then realised that if you got a cloth soaked in liquid rich of ammonia, which is urine, put that over your face, closed your eyes, you could still breathe. And that would actually stop the chlorine gas getting into your respiratory system by having a piece of, a, a piece of cloth, be it a sock, anything. Anything that's material could soak up the urine. Putting that over your face and breathing through that, closing your eyes, and that would work so the communal buckets all started so you'd all urinate into a bucket and uh and when the attack happened you'd just take your piece of material dunk it into the bucket and uh put it on your face hold it well, hold it to your face sorry yeah because uh that sort of brought a new meaning to sharing is caring 
Yes, just a little bit. And it, it's rather amusing because I've, I've, of course, known for a few years that the guys did do this, but we're kind of taught this in, in school and it's kind of on the grapevine when you, people talk about gas warfare or chemical warfare or whatnot. People say, oh, you know, they used to um, sort of urinate on on a, on a hanky and put it over the mouth. And you, even if you don't know anything about this kind of period, you're probably sat there laughing, thinking, yeah, whatever sort of thing. But that's what the guys did, and you know the human body does great things, like Pete says. But so 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 does the uh, human brain as well. You know, it adapts and it overcomes, and and it works, and you know it it stops the guys from really really suffering. But very quickly, of course, the the boffins got round that table again, didn't they, Pete? As you always say, and they started churning out some actual usable anti-gas equipment, which I I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, is where the the black veil uh, steps into to being for the first time. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Obviously, the boffins, they got told, right, we can't have our blokes stood around with urine on their faces. So we got to actually make them something that they can actually use. So so they got to thinking. And like you rightly said, the black veil starts making an appearance. Uh, face pads start making appearances as well. It, it's very, very basic stuff. Uh, we could say, well, we all consider very basic stuff. Obviously, it's, it's a step above a piece of urine on a hang on some urine some urine on a hanky but it was doing the job it needed to do at that time and what i what i'll sort of demonstrate in the um in this podcast is how clever the boffins actually were with their development of it and you'll see how quickly it moves uh through the evolution of what they're wearing so you got things like you said, Steve, the black veil. So this is something. Uh, let's bring a, a sort of a, a living history reenactor's uh, perspective on this very briefly. The the replicators of black veils always get it wrong. Do you know why they get it wrong, Steve? Tell me, Peter. Why did they get it wrong? They never put the veil on it. <laughs> so you'll go to these uh reproducers of black veils and yeah yes it's black and some of them are made of like a veil material but there's no veil to it so the actual idea behind it it was actually made out of like a muslin cloth or a veil material like a wedding veil material dyed black it was made of one piece of material and this material it would have um one large piece which is just sort of single lined then it will sort of then at the bottom it would then fold over itself and it'd be stitched either side and inside there would be cotton waste. So that's your rest, that's where that's the part that's going to go over your mouth and your nose uh, so you can breathe and that'll be soaked in an anti-gas ointment. So it's like a hypo solution that they're putting into it. Now hypo will become more prevalent later on. So I'm just putting that out there very quickly. <laughs> So it's like a hypo solution they put in it. The mask would go over the soldier's face. He'll he'll then put the veil, because it's obviously attached to one piece of material, over his head, and it's the veil would it technically protect his eyes. How how good it was, I don't know. And I think this is where we come into that uh, replica uh, where people have replicated these. And one of the only examples is one at the Imperial War Museum, or it's part of the Imperial War Museum collection. And it doesn't have the veil to it. My my belief is that the veil was actually a load of old rubbish and it didn't really do the job. And I think what blokes were doing, they were actually cutting the veil off and using like driver's goggles instead. Because obviously that's a lot, you know, you've got a better seal on your face. 
But at the same time, you've got the black veil coming out and you've got normal face pads. So just imagine a pad, a pad made out of something like uh, brushed cotton, stuff with cotton waste, all sealed up all around the edges. And it's got tapes either side that will go over your face and your mouth and you put a pair of driver's goggles on or motorcycle goggles, something of that, of that nature. You've also got people like Boots the Chemist. They're bringing out a face mask, um, and the and the look of it is actually uh, very much like those cotton those cotton face masks that they were giving out during COVID. So uh, <laughs> yeah, so when I saw the picture of of one, well, someone someone gave me one of these sort of reusable masks. I looked up, well, that looks familiar. And then months later, I'm just flicking through one of my books and I find the mask. Oh, that's what that reminded me of. Yeah, so um, they produce something called, so they call that the medicated mask. There's loads of little prototypes, private purchases of a type of mask that are coming on the market from private sellers. Not all that effective, but they are doing the job that they need to do. And remember that the likes of like the black veil and the face pads are only being used for about a month, month and a half. Yes. Yeah, so the turnover of uh, anti-gas equipment, especially in 1915 is, is rapidly, rapidly quick. Uh, it's a case of, I believe that the, you know, the boffins, let's keep using that. I like that term. It's quite cool. Um, they, they sort of racing to try and try and keep, um, just you know, try and catch up and keep ahead of the current trend because we're not just stuck with, with chlorine gas, we've got new types of gas um, being being created, which are more uh, deadlier. I'm sure we'll come on to them very shortly. There's new ways of them being used as well, uh, you know, on, on the field of uh, of combat. Now, you mentioned the hypo hood, and I've, I think you're the person to debunk this. I don't know whether it's true or not, but I was told that the hypo was developed uh, from a, a, a guy on the front line saw a German who was subject to a gas attack. And in desperation, his German who had no gas equipment with him grabbed a sandbag and put it over his head um, to try and breathe and stop him from breathing gas in. Is that true, or is that just you know hyperbole? I I, I don't know. I because the thing is, if he's just putting a bag on his head, it's not it's not soaked in anything, so the gas is just going to get in, isn't it? <laughs> so yeah, I, I I can't see what truth there is in that. To be honest. Yeah, I, th I think it's one of those stories. It's, it probably has been, you know, sort of Chinese whispered, shall we say, um, you know, over the years. And, and someone's heard part of the story and then regurgitated it and, and changed it. But yeah, I, I, I heard that's how the, the hypo idea came about. Because before I got personally got involved in like World War One living history to the sort of uh, depth I am now, I saw photos of guys from around the 1915-16 period. And uh, I always saw them with like, the top buttons undone. And I always thought, you know, that typical mindset, which I know we all hate, you always think oh, that's a little bit slovenly, you know, you got your buttons done up on your tunic. But there's actually a reason behind it, isn't there? There is. And that's, you know, that's when the, uh, you know, from when the hypo hood gets introduced. And so by May, June, 1915, so bearing in mind, the first gas attack was in April. We're now in May, June time. We've now got a half decent-ish respirator or piece of anti-gas equipment, which is the hypo hood. Um, it's made out of wool flannel. So it's the same sort of material that the soldiers' shirts are made out of. It is literally a, looks almost basically like a pillowcase. Uh, <laughs> and it's got a window in it. So there's a, there's a window cut out and sewn into it is a window. And that is made out of a material called mica 
or Mika or something like that it's called. But it's first-generation plastic. That's what it is. So the soldier will put that over his head, tuck it into his tunic, and the buttons are undone for him to be able to eat quickly, put the hood on, to put the hood on, tuck it in, and then he'll do the buttons up to create the seal. So that's uh, yeah. So that's that's why um, if you're within about it's three miles of the front line, use your first two buttons because of, just because it was that easy access of uh, getting the hoods on. But yeah, but that's the hypo, and it's dipped in a, a chemical called hyposulfate. So it's actually dipped in a solution. The whole hood is dipped in a solution called hyposulfate. And that will stop chlorine gas, no problem, no problem at all. But the problem, the downside to it is that it must be kept wet uh, or moist. Uh, so they come with rubberized bags. So you get a rubberized bag, the hood goes in there, and that would help keep the hood moist. They used to have baths behind the line where they'd have hyposulfate baths where they could re-dip them and things like that. But the service period of one of these hoods is something like 10 minutes that's the sort of life expectancy of one of these hoods. So after 10 minutes of use, it's take the hood off, burn it, get a new one if you're able to. And I think testament to just not necessarily how flimsy they are, but just their longevity is like, like you said, there's, you know, very few of these pieces of anti-gas equipment that survive. I've, I've personally not seen an original hypo hood. I've seen photos of P and PHs, which I know we'll come on to shortly or jumping a gun a bit there, but Definitely not of any, of any hypos, but just to sort of um, you know reaffirm that they are just like they are just a piece of like uh, you know cloth essentially with that Mika eyepiece. They are you know kind of the, well, the same thickness as a shirt. They're nothing substantial. They're certainly not a respirator or a gas mask as we think of one now. It's just a piece of cloth. You put put it over your head, tuck it into your tunic, and do your top button up, and um, and that's it. And unlike which we'll, we'll come on to the PMPH of course, but. The hypo, the main issue with that was the, the steaming up of that Mika uh, sort of lens. So from our living history perspective, we know it so well, just how stuffy it is to put that hypo hood on. And then when you breathe in, yes, you're breathing your oxygen in through uh, through the cloth. The, the the chemicals are working to keep filter the gas out. But when you exhale, all that happens, is it just fills that hood with, um, you know, uh, sort of air and it just clouds up with condensation that that eyepiece and it's just so it's such a, a rubbish design in that sense although it worked to keep the gas out it was you know pretty rubbish if you actually you know, need to fire your rifle or see what's happening in front of you or god moving around a trench just imagine it i mean it's hard enough like just just in kit on a normal day but wearing something like that and trying to move around and you know put ammunition in your rifle and so forth that must be such such a kerfuffle yeah it is and you know, and we, we found this when we did the first trench event where we're using hypos. Um, and even the veterans would say, you know, you, you had to keep on rubbing the eyepiece on your forehead to try and demist it. Uh, and the other thing as well is that mica is, is very brittle plastic. Even when it's new, it's quite brittle. So they're, they're notorious for breaking as well. So you could... You know, use it once, uh, lean against it the wrong way if you folded it up wrong or something like that, lent up against the trench wall or something and get it out and you found out you've cracked the lens. Um, and obviously that renders it useless because the gas can get in. So the boffins had to think of something else. <laughs> yeah, the boffins have been very busy, haven't they, tonight? Yes, they have tonight. So they got to thinking again. They go, right, 
Hypo is all right, but it is a bit naff. So we can't have him using this anymore. So we need to come and we need to come up with something else. And we're starting to mix up our own gases, and the hypo solution isn't gonna stop these gases. And we know the Germans are experimenting as well with new gases. So we need to start thinking of something that we can use that's gonna be sustainable. So rolls along September of 1916. So We've gone from April to May. So April, face pads, black veils, call them what you will, to May, June time when your hypo hood comes in. So we've now gone from May, June to now September. So two, So literally this is all happening in, in um, a space of three months each time. It's almost like a little pattern forming here. <laughs> so within three months, they bring out their newfangled pea helmet. So the P hood stands for phenate, like the hypo hood. It was made out of uh, brushed wool, uh, like the shirts, but it was also lined as well. So it was lined with cotton, with uh, brushed cotton as well. So you've got two, so you've got now, now you've got two layers, but also importantly, you've now got two eyepieces. So you've got two metal eyepieces uh, with a mica eyepiece in the, in the center. Um, which is now protected by the metal eye pieces. And the, and the most advanced thing of this hood is the mouthpiece. So you now have a flutter valve. So you breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth to try and stop the steam up of the lenses. So this arrives just in time for the Battle of Luz in 1915. So those lads that are going in on the first wave of the Battle of Luz They've been issued with this brand new hood. Bear in mind, when these hoods are coming out, not everybody's being issued with these hoods all at once. It does take a little bit of time for things to sort of get moving. But if there's something like an offensive going on, they will prioritise those men and get that brand new equipment over to them, such as the new P hood, which they take in with into lose with them. Yeah, lose is a really interesting uh, battle to talk about. I mean, a lot of people in the sort of you know look at the First World War, they'll be almost obsessive about the Battle of the Somme, you know, for obvious reasons. But lose is one of those huge offensives that the Allies put on. Uh, this, of course, you know, uh, yeah, September nineteen fifteen, and it is overlooked uh, really, really unfairly. Uh, it's it's the first genuine full scale attack that the the British put on, where they actually use um, use gas. So they're using uh, chlorine. They're putting they're putting the troops in, and they're actually putting chlorine gas um, into into the field just just ahead of the advancing troops. So they're actually thinking ahead here, and they're getting the guys to roll the smoke hoods up on top of their head. Um, you know, in preparation for the you know the, the sort of wind changing direction, or the guys having to you know clear trenches that are full of of gas. And on, on paper, it's a great. Uh, offensive, you know, the, the plan's brilliant. We had to uh, really look into the gubbins of, of the Battle of Luz for our trench event a few years ago when we did it, and and that was that was really interesting because I didn't know much about Luz at that point. And um, you know, did was it a success? Well, Luz Luz wasn't. Uh, you know, not too dissimilar to the Somme. It just was more stalemate. It was more of more of the same. But uh, looking at just doing a bit of you know statistics as always like to do, so they do tell you a lot. You know, the sixty thousand uh, were, were killed over double the the German losses um, at Luz, but just uh, just over two and a half thousand of those casualties were actually uh, casualties wounded wounded from gas. So it's it's playing a role in a battle, but it's playing 
a minor role. But I think what we can look into those statistics and say is, well, actually, the anti-gas equipment is doing its job. Yes, it is. Although the yeah the P the P hood did have its uh, drawback, which proved to be a little bit costly for our lads, unfortunately. Because uh, like you've already mentioned, Steve, gas was used at uh, Lose, and um, like the Germans did with us at the Second Battle of Eeps, at the Battle of Lose, we opened up with a bit of gas. Um, we fired our three shells, I think, because <laughs> obviously we had the ammunition shortage at that time. Um, so the Barrage, well, the, the barrage they could muster uh, went in, uh, and then they released the gas. They said, "Look, we're really short on shells, so we'll have to throw gas at them." Uh, but it's all right because the lads have got the newfangled P hoods now, so that'll be that'll be all right. So they could just walk straight into it, no problem. Sound plan. Everyone say, "That's that's that's all right. That's, that sounds like it could work." Well, remember when I said earlier about uh, gas is it travels on the wind. Um, so the attack starts, whistle goes, lads to go over the top, they got their hoods on, then the gas changes direction. It blow, it blows over from the German line over to our lads who are now making their way across no man's land. You remember these lads are carrying over 60 pounds worth of kit in total, um, and, and it's September, so it's still, the weather isn't, well, it's not, overly hot like it would have been the month before but it's still it's still quite warm plus they're expiring now and they've got the hoods on so they're quite close to folk the hoods on they're sweat there they are now starting they are sweating now the problem was is that quite a few of the blokes started feeling stinging sensations on their faces thinking obviously brand new hood obviously there's a massive drawback they don't bloody work so they hang on a minute the gas is getting inside the hood so they're pulling the hoods off and then they're getting gassed. Now, the, the stinging sensation that they're feeling is actually the chemical reaction of their sweat to the phenate that's in the hoods. The hoods were do the hoods were doing their job, but unfortunately, they weren't they didn't expect to have a chemical reaction like they were having. So um the boffins had to start thinking again. I'm sure they must have been claiming overtime for this because they're certainly earning their earning the crust, but it, it's all about keeping sort of ahead of that, uh, sort of ahead of the pace in that sense. It's, it must be, must have been for them, like a, one of those jobs kind of like, I suppose not too dissimilar to the people who are trying to find a, a vaccine uh, for, for COVID, you know, it's one of those jobs that you, you just need to get on people. You got know, that kind of weight on your shoulders. If you don't sort something out, these, you know, people are going to die. And even the war could, could have, could have been lost in that sense. But what was, what was the next step then from, from the P was that, that onto the, the PH where they start dipping it in, in phenate and, and hexamine as well. Yes. Um, as it's, it's a very good point you brought up Steve about, uh, like trying to get these things out and the people that are trying to get it all done. Like I can never, it's unfortunate because the man is an unsung hero um, and it isn't, his name escapes me now, but this bloke, he doesn't know. He is one of the boffins and uh, he basically used to gas himself. He used to take all these different trial hoods and things like that. And he'd gas himself with different gases uh, to see if they worked. Sometimes they worked, sometimes they didn't. But he'd gas himself just enough so it didn't actually cause any damage. But unfortunately for him, uh, after the war, like many sol- like soldiers on the front line who got a good lung full of gas end up getting uh, lung problems into the 1920s and end up getting uh, 
lung Ill- lung illnesses and obviously consequently dying. And he was one of them, unfortunately. But he was an unsung hero in my eyes. I just cannot. I, I, I'm annoyed with myself that I can't remember this man's name. But there was a few other blokes like that as well, doing exactly the same job as him. But this bloke took it one step further, and he was constantly doing it to himself uh, just to try and get a, a decent uh, respirator, so to speak, to the to the lads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But yes, back to the P2, back to the invention of the P-hood. So the boffins come up with the PH-hood. Uh, it's believed that the uh, so PH stands for phenate hexamine. Now the story goes is that phenate hexamine at the time was actually used in the agricultural uh, community. What they used it for, I couldn't rightly tell you, <laughs> but as far as I'm aware, um, it was used in the agriculture community. Uh, the boffins, they were trying to work out their way. Like, Look, we need to neutralise this phenate. We need to be able to neutralise it because of obvious reasons. And someone turned around and said, well, they use it in the agricultural community uh, for whatever job this is. And they add hexamine to it and it neutralizes it. So they can actually handle it and put their van- put their hands in it and things like that. So what if we try that? And they went, yeah, okay, then, well, we've got nothing to lose, have we really? So they then, so consequently came up with the pH. Now the pH is exactly the same as the P-Hood. Now, you'll see photographs uh, in 1960. So this P-Hood is coming in by December, January. Again, it's that sort of three-month thing, isn't it? Uh, by January, by December, January, uh, so December 1915, January 1916, the new P-Hoods are coming out onto the front line. Um, some of them are still made out of the same materials as what the P-Hoods were, because they made a load, and they're like, well, we need to use them up, don't we? So you'll see some photographs in 1916 of, especially early 16, where some blokes are wearing grey, what looks like a black or grey PH hood, and other blokes are wearing white. That's why, because the the hood that the grey ones that they're wearing are actually were originally did, were going to originally be P hoods. So uh, that's a little bit of a uh, bit of knowledge for you when you're looking at photographs of blokes wearing PH hoods. But the white one comes in about three months later the white one does they go right what we'll do is we'll make it a lot better we'll try and iron things out so to speak so so right we'll get rid of the wall we don't need the wall because it's soaked in a material so what they ended up doing was getting brushed cotton now some of you might be listening out there going well what is brushed cotton well it's basically a bed sheet 
it's what they used for bed sheets at the time, <laughs> even all the way up to the 1970s. I can remember my uh, my nan and granddad still using brushed cotton bed sheets, and you can still buy them today. But yeah, but that's what brushed cotton is. It's that sort of furry, thick, heavy cotton uh, sheeting. But that's what that's what brushed cotton is. So they made it out of brushed cotton. It was white, and again, double layer of brush of brushed of brushed cotton. And it ends up being one of the best pieces of anti-gas equipment of the war, despite being how simple and basic it is or was. It was very, very, very good. And it would actually stop one of the worst gases of the war, which was phosgene gas. And phosgene gas, in a nutshell, it basically dissolves you from the inside outwards. Um, it was one of those gases where it was, uh, you couldn't see it. You could sometimes smell it. But usually, you know, when you're getting hit by it, because a mate of yours is sat there coughing up his own blood. So it's starting to dissolve his uh, uh, esophagus and his lungs. So that's what that basically does. It basically dissolves your lungs almost. But yeah, that would stop it, believe it or not. That would actually stop phosgene gas. So uh, and the and the and the pH hood would actually still be in use all the way until 1918. So the white pH hoods become notorious on the Somme sector. So you'll see a lot of photographs, the Somme, 1916, uh, a lot of lads wearing white hypo, uh, white PH hoods. Why? Because it's the brand new hood and that's where the offensive's happening. So they're giving them all the brand new kit. Yeah, it's fascinating how, how the sort of um, anti-gas equipment is, is trying to keep pace and trying to turn the tables on the development of, of gas as these kind of two groups of scientists almost. You can see them battling it out behind the scenes in the in their you know respective labs. One team trying to design this anti-gas equipment and then another team trying to design more uh, chemical agents to, to just kill people. And phos- phosgene is one of those gases that is just almost completely forgotten to the midst, midst of time. We've we all know mustard gas, and we'll come on to that soon. But that was uh, that wasn't developed until you know, kind of halfway through the war, near enough. And that's the gas that we all kind of uh, know about. If you know anything about the First World War, it's even just a little bit. Mustard gas is that one that's always explained to you. Um, but phosgene, yeah, it's, it's it's that gas where you know you, you can't you can't necessarily see it, you can't necessarily smell it. It's that silent kind of killer, and it's it's by far it, it, it's what six times more potent than than chlorine gas. It's um, that that's pretty grim, and I, I believe that I believe it's phosgene that holds the record for the most number of attributed deaths in in the great war as well which is pretty damn grim it's certainly um not a clean demise at all yeah and you know and that's also one of the biggest contributions to all these lung problems you know they say like something like three percent of the main casualties of the first world war was from gas but what they haven't said is about the blokes after the war you know into the 1920s and 30s who would be basically coughing their lungs up because they had a good mouthful of things like phosgene and mustard gas um but obviously mustard gas works a lot differently but it still contributed to those lung problems that some of these soldiers had in there, you know, and they were di- they were still dying young. You know, these blokes were dying in their thirties and their forties, long after the war, uh, just before the, the Second World War period. You know, they're, they're they're dying of these lung problems all because of a result. So, you know, the First World War was still killing people long long after it was uh, over and done with. But we 
go back on. We digress. We digress. Um, so PH hood and loads of prototypes of other anti-gas equipment is coming through. Like we've explained, so the boffins are constantly working. They're working, working, working. There's some examples of some of these prototypes still exist uh, in museums. Uh, some of them uh, look feasible, then some of them look damn right bizarre. Um, the Germans uh, will will will. We'll sort of tip the hat to the Germans at this point because the Germans are actually using a boxed respirator. So where were you? So where our soldiers are basically putting a bag on their head. Um, the Germans actually got a filtered respirator, and they're using this uh, for quite pretty much since pretty much yeah pretty much from the get go of their um, of the gas war, so to speak. But we just didn't have the technology to make it. Uh, we, we, we'd send out trench raids. Uh, so a lot of people, you know, just touch on the trench raiders. Um, a lot of people think that a trench raid would be to go and snatch a prisoner and bring him back. Well, and that wasn't always the case. You know, it was intelligence gathering as well. And if they got into a German trench, then they wanted to get in there and capture equipment such as gas masks because they need to take those gas masks back so the boffins can sit there, look at it, poke at it, chew on a pen, and then... Uh, work out how to take this thing apart and build it together and what they've used on the inside to create it. And there's a prototype of a of a hood uh, <laughs> that they made. Uh, I can't remember what museum it's in now, but it's, it, it's basically a PH hood with a German filter attached to the front of it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, uh, again, one of the bizarre uh, prototypes that they come up with. But then they crack the secret of the chocolate orange um so we're now coming into very very late 1916 uh the boffins have cracked it there's been a few prototypes go out and come back in going yes no maybe but now they've gone we've cracked the secret of the chocolate orange here is your service box respirator and this is the very first uh gas mask to be issued on mass to the british army and it is a gas mask. It has uh, a box uh, with the fil- with the filter inside it. It has a tube that runs up to a canvas face piece. So it's a rubberized canvas face piece. Still got mica eyepieces. Um, you bite onto a sort of snorkel. You've got a nose pinch, so you don't breathe in through your nose or out through your nose. So you've got a nose pinch that pinches your nose. Your mouth goes over the snorkel and you breathe in through your mouth and out through your mouth. And when you exhale, there's a flutter valve identical to the type on the P and the PH hoods. And that's where your exhaled oxygen goes through. And that is the best mask of the war. And that will come in very, very late 1916 and then starts being kicked out in 1917 and all ready for the big push at Passchendaele or the third Battle of Eeps. So, yes, with the with the SBR coming in, the first proper you know, respirator the British Army's known. Of course, we have the uh, sort of advent of, of mustard gas making its appearance uh, for, the, for the first time now on its own in isolation, not necessarily something that's going to kill you, but it's, it's the infection from the blisters on his skin. So it's a blistering agent. Mustard gas is very, very grim. It's horrible blisters. If your skin's exposed to it and it's the inf- subsequent infection from them that cause a lot of guys, major issues. If it doesn't kill them, it's, it, it's certainly uh, caused many people, um, you know, problems in, in sort of later life. And I think, 
if you if, if you're listening, you're in in the UK. If you go down to your local churchyard and you know look at some of the headstones of Commonwealth War Graves, you'll see some of some of the dates which Pete alluded to earlier on in this podcast. You know, some of these headstones they have 1919, 1920, 1921 dates on you know into war years, and you think well that's a little bit strange. It's not not typically normal for someone of 23 or 24 to pass away. You know, with so many of them, and that's typically from the after effects of, of gas and the exposure to it. So, shows you just how how prevalent it was. And my wife's, I believe, it's great great uncle. Um, he was one of those guys who, who survived the First World War, but died only a couple of years after returning. Um, but there's many of them who, who suffered with them. If it didn't kill them, it certainly gave them a very uh, uncomfortable uh, life. Um, when I came back to the UK, but I think it's very much a case of with, with, with the in, sort of invention of the SBR that gas warfare doesn't necessarily become redundant, but it almost becomes near useless because no matter what gas you're going to throw at troops, if they've got quality, uh, effective anti-gas equipment, it's almost um, it almost is redundant in that sense to, to use gas against against troops. Yeah, and I think although we're still, well, both sides were still using it all the way into 1918, um, I think gas, well, I think for us, gas became a hindrance by the time the pH hood came into issue because, like I said before, basic yet effective. And it just became a hindrance to blokes. It's like, oh, here we go again. We've got another one. We've got another gas attack happening now. Um, and And more so when it comes into the SBR generation, um, because you can throw as much gas at a bloke as you want, but you know, obviously it does, the filter does have a lifespan. Don't get me wrong, but it, it's not bothering him as much as it would have done four years ago. Um, and also to, so i add to that as well, is that we're not only using your chlorine gas, your mustard gas, your phosgene gas, what we're doing, and the Germans are doing it as well, don't get me wrong, uh, we're actually mixing gases as well. So you've got things like tear gas. Tear gas is still being used. So all these horrible, nasty gases that are now available or now available to them, tear gas is still being used. Because when you're hit with tear gas, you know if you're hit with tear gas because your nose starts running, your eyes hurt. So they'd wear goggles. So their thing. So the British soldier has a thing called a spot called the Spicer goggles, which are very cheap, basic to make. Um, so you either have a pair of Spicer goggles or you have a pair of rubber driving goggles or motorbike goggles. So when tear gas hit you, you just put those on. Uh, just hold your breath for a bit. But what the Germans were then doing was going. What we'll do is we'll hit them with chlorine gas, but then we'll hit them with phosgene. So they're mixing the gases together. So where blokes are thinking, oh, I say a bit of chlorine gas, there's nothing wrong with that. Suddenly, bang, some bloke's coughing his insides up because he's got phosgene inside him. And it's like, oh, here we go, we've got bloody phosgene. But we're doing exactly the same to them. And the other thing that draws on to the German side of things as well is like what I mentioned before, they actually have a respirated gas mask. Uh, looks almost similar to the type that the British civilians were issued during the Second World War, that that style of respirator. Problem is, it was very good when it was first invented, but because we became very clued up on gas, and our gases were actually, by the end of the war, far worse than what the Germans had. So 
we were constantly developing, developing all the time on the uh, gas warfare front because we wanted the bigger, better, nastier gases than them because they is they got you know it's well them you started it we're finishing it. Um, so the German boffins have got to do the same thing because they've got to adapt their filters. Like, Hang on a minute, the British are using this new gas, and our blokes are catching a load of it because the filters aren't working. So we need to put this in the filter. We need to put that in the filter. And it makes the filters heavy. And you'll find photographs of German soldiers, especially the very late war period, sort of 1918, with their respirators on, where you'd see the seal should be sort of on the top of the forehead. The seal, like the top of the mask, is now almost touching their eyelids because the weight of the because of the weight of the mask, it's dragging it down. And that's not very good either, because in some instances that won't create a very good seal, especially also Germans were known for having beards as well. So you haven't quite got that seal to get um get around the mask to you know stop the gas from getting in so it by that point the gas was becoming more of a hindrance to the germans than it was to us it's really interesting talking about the development of, of, of gas warfare but not just that the the equipment as well that goes with it because it's, it's again another piece of equipment that these soldiers having you know already encumbered with all the kit and ammunition he's then getting more uh sort of equipment thrown his way and he's having to learn how to use it and how to to wear it and so forth and you know just diving forward to the second world war there was no actual well there was a couple of instances of gas being used but they were very minute but in sort of um general terms there was no gas warfare used in the second world war um it's worth noting though that the british we we actually plan to use it on the invasion beaches of uh you know around, around the uk we had uh, aircraft and crop sprayers repurposed ready to use uh, gas on the on the enemy if they invaded and uh of course that never happened but um, in turn the germans never used it against us as an interesting sort of sidetrack my uh my grandfather was actually um a a, a uh, part of the training team at the army gas school in 1942 looking at his uh, original service record he he taught all about a uh, you know anti-gas equipment and the effects of gas and so forth so that's quite an interesting little um link but of course there is one huge significant use of uh gas in in the second world war which i think just needs a very sobering mention does it not poop uh, yeah, Cyclone B, and those of you that don't know what Cyclone B is, that was the gas that was used on the Jews in the concentration camps. So uh, gas didn't get used on soldiers, but unfortunately civilians did get gassed, um, obviously in the Jewish concentration camps. But I think, um, you know, where you touched on it, Steve, where, you know, we yes, we, we'd actually planned to use gas if the Germans had, uh, invaded, which is very, yeah, very, very true. Yeah, we were backs against the wall when it was like anything we could throw at and we could. And I think, from a soldier's perspective, is the fact of it never got used was because the Germans knew that we had it, and we knew they had it. And I also think because it's also another. I don't know if it's more myth or just more sort of sensible thinking. Um, Hitler was actually gassed during the First World War, and I think he didn't want gas being thrown onto soldiers because he'd experienced it firsthand for himself, the after effects of a gas attack and him having actually been a gas casualty himself with temporary blindness. And I think that's why it never got used. But yeah, here instances, um, I, I, I came across a text, many, not a text on the phone, but text as in reading. <laughs> um, 
we actually threw a little bit of mustard gas up on the Indian frontier when the tribesmen got a bit leery. So it was like uh, tribesmen, the uh, the old Pathans got a bit got a bit. Uh, Got, got a bit leery, so oh, what we'll do is we'll throw a bit of mustard gas on them, because no one will care because it's on the Indian frontier, no one cares about that um, but it was never done in, like, like, I say only, but you know, gassing people isn't good, but uh, and then when it, and also the Italians you know, don't forget also we, the Italians, uh, they used gas when they went and tried to reclaim the Roman Empire, they they used gas on Somalian civilians or, you know, their, mili- their military uh, but luckily, we, uh, from a military point of view, the British Allied armies never encountered it. However, we did come very, very close, though. And this is something not many people know about. There is a ship off the coast of Italy that actually has gas still in the bowels of the ship. Um, it's mustard gas because the Americans came up with a grand plan because of the contrition rate at Monte Cassino. The Americans come up with a plan that, We'll just gas them out then, shall we? Uh, so, so this gas came over from America, but luckily, I say luckily, the ship was actually sunk just off the coast of Italy, and it never made it to dock, and it never got used. So, just imagine if the Americans had actually followed through that plan and released gas at Monte Cassino, how different could the war have been? Wow, that's that's something I didn't know about. I'm going to have to go away and have a look at that now. But on Wikipedia will be my friend, but blimey, yeah, that would have changed. Uh, well, it probably would have changed the, the course of history much, much, much dare I say like the, um, you know, the, the atom bomb did in that sense. But uh, thankfully they didn't use it. Cause I know the Germans would have used it in uh, you know, sort of retaliation and yeah, maybe the war would have dragged on for, for more years, but I suppose the only positive would have been, it would give us more to talk about on gas warfare, but for, but for now, that is that is everything in this episode. So thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you've really enjoyed this. You've learned something from it. That's the reason why we put this podcast together. And, and indeed, that's why Living History UK uh, exists, is to inform, educate, and enthuse. And do you know what? If you want to come and see History in Action in the flesh on the 22nd and 23rd of April next year at the Living History UK Festival, tickets are on sale now. There's going to be a link in the description to this uh, podcast, as well as a link to a documentary Peter and I made late last year, all about uh, World War One gas warfare over on YouTube. So, till next time, thanks for listening, and keep history alive. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question or even a subject matter for the podcast, join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, keep history alive.